So I started twerking last night. Dunno, just did. Was listening to the Radio Wolfgang and the urge just took me to twerk. No, I was terrible, obviously. Come on. You could get crock in the cool, but What do you get when you cross protest, performance art, and magic? The mass exorcism and levitation of the Department of Defense. Yes, you heard it right. The Pentagon was once exercised by a bunch of dirty Nurgut hippies, no less. In those days, the Pentagon was the epicenter of evil. They were the force of darkness. Protest against the American military establishment was, of course, nothing new. But in 1967, a new and frankly weird element entered the Pentagon's list of problems. This great group celebration of confronting the power of the Pentagon and probably a rather drug-fueled, orgiastic experience for those who would attend. By the exorcism time, I was fully angry at the war. America, when will we end the human war? Go fuck yourself with your atom bomb. You want to conduct this war in Vietnam, you're doing it under siege of your own people. I'm Carl Williams. I flog old books, records, placards, posters, the occasional opium pipe, and I've been doing it for 20 years. And I was always fascinated by magic in the 60s. It's 1967, and for a troubled America, the times they are indeed a-changing. The great society rests on abundance and liberty for all. It demands an end to poverty and racial injustice. It's a long, hot summer of violent race riots in Cleveland, Newark, and Detroit. Right now, about 15,000 police and National Guardsmen are on patrol in the 40-square-mile riot area. Open looting and arson seem to have been brought under control. The sound of the sniper's rifle, however, is being heard even more frequently today. And elsewhere, the hippie movement is turning on, tuning in and dropping out in their summer of love. By October, there are now nearly half a million American soldiers fighting in Vietnam. And as anti-war sentiment reaches new heights, activists seek new ways to protest the war. The 60s, it's such a big topic. That's Dr. Cami Rowe, lecturer in theatre and performance theory. How do you begin to characterize this time period that was so saturated with really serious pressing political problems and a growing awareness of those problems on the part of the public and, and this growing what we call counterculture. People kind of looking around themselves and thinking society as it is is not working. 
for the most part, most Americans uh, did support the war, especially in 1967 when the exorcism uh, occurred. The actual opponents of the war were not as many as, as are sometimes remembered in the popular imagination. My name is Joseph Laycock, and I am an assistant professor of religious studies at Texas State University. In the 1960s, there was what's often referred to as an occult revival. The baby boomer generation began to explore sort of alternative spirituality, and this resulted in a revival of folk practices and paganism, and this became part of the cultural background of the 1960s. The turn to magic really came from a place of hopelessness, a sense of not having any power, the normal ways of representing your interests in a democracy, voting, writing to your congressman, were not going to work, and that their last hope was sort of to turn to various forms of magic, either to literally invoke supernatural aid to help them, or to kind of create a new consciousness by changing the way that people thought about the situation. So, how did a generation prime for magic harness this as a political weapon? Well, by herming in on the establishment. The reason the Pentagon was targeted is that a lot of people involved thought it was this very kind of oppressive symbol that was sort of blocking human progress forward and that symbolic power had to be broken. But they very specifically said, we don't want to target Congress or the White House because this would be sending the wrong message, that they were not unpatriotic. They were for their country, but they were opposed to the war. There was no single mastermind behind the exorcism of the Pentagon, and you can tell that even from the way that it's described, the levitation and exorcism of the Pentagon. Someone came up with an idea to, to levitate it, and someone came up with an idea to exorcise it, and it all sort of blurred together. Uh, you had poets like Allen Ginsberg and Gary Schneider. You also had Abby Hoffman, this famous prankster uh, of the so-called New Left movement. And finally, a key figure was Ed Sanders of the band The Fugs. Who can kill a general in his bed? Overthrow dictators if they're Fucking amen. It was very difficult to operate a, a rebel rock band in 1967 and 68. We had to have a, a lawyer on a retainer in case we were arrested. You know, we were picketed by right-wing nurses, deputy sheriffs showing up in our shows threatening to arrest us. Ed, prolific poet, political activist, musician and enduring veteran of the 60s beat slash hippie generation, now lives in a cabin in the woods with his wife Miriam and a menagerie of animals. I'm Ed Sanders. Uh, this is Woodstock, New York, a place where my wife and I, Miriam, have lived for 42 years. So, gotta wash up somewhere. The bookstores in New York City were a big influence on me. They were like a very important part of one's upbringing in the 50s. None of us had any phones. There was no internet. There was only reaching out to bookstores that you could learn information that's not published by the mainstream media. So I decided to open up a bookstore and I found an old kosher meat market on East 10th Street. I just left the word strictly kosher on the window and then added Peace Eye Bookstore. 
Ed was a leading force in the so-called mimeograph revolution. Mimeography, using a low-cost duplicating machine, revolutionized the underground printing scene, providing an alternative to the mainstream publishers. It enabled individuals to print and disseminate information to larger audiences, bypassing more official printing channels, and most importantly, censorship. We spread thousands of pages of poetry, but also pro-peace, pro-left, you know, pro-social democracy, pro-liberation, pro-integration. It was a big America was still not allowing a lot of its blacks to go to the same restrooms and restaurants as whites. So there was a lot of struggling going on right that time. We'd been protesting against the war in Vietnam since Johnson expanded the war in 1964 and 65. But by the exorcism time, I was fully angry at the war. The war wouldn't end, no matter what we did. We've tried 50,000. We tried draft card burnings, you know, sit-ins, teach-ins. We tried all kinds of things. There was no way to bring this war to an end. So it was decided to take the anti-war movement to the Pentagon itself. So all the anti-war movements, a number of them, joined forces and decided to call for an action on October 21st at the Pentagon. By this stage in the late 60s, the hippie as a character had become quite caricatured. Well, there are the hippies. They make you uncomfortable because there is obviously something wrong with the world they never made if it leads them to these grotesqueries. They, at their best, are trying for a kind of group sainthood. And saints running in groups are likely to be ludicrous. Abby Hoffman was very savvy about that. And he thought, OK, well, we'll play on this stereotype then. We'll play on this caricature of the hippie. And we'll be terribly mystic and otherworldly and, and what have you. They devised this action that was specifically designed to completely shatter the mold of what was sort of politics as usual. The idea of the exorcism was a kind of tongue-in-cheek theatrical response to what was perceived as a really serious problem in society. And okay, it's, it's really difficult actually to know specifically what went on in the planning and the execution of the event. There are many, many conflicting accounts um, and of course, so much of the planning we have to recognize was, was conducted under the influence of various mind-altering substances. Right from the get-go, there were a lot of people involved who had very different visions of what this was supposed to look like. Allen Ginsberg was primarily the theoretician, if you will, behind this event. Allen Ginsberg had very sophisticated ideas about language uh, and really about semiotics. Semiotics is the study of symbols, and he believed very firmly the power of the Pentagon comes from its symbolic meaning. When the people look at the Pentagon, they see something important, and that by ritual and by language, we could change what that symbol means. Uh, and so that people might see it as something dangerous, something that is sending young men off to die. Ginsburg kind of provided this philosophical basis on which everything else rested. I here declare the end of the war. Let the states tremble. 
Ed Sanders, he actually composed a sort of formula of exorcism that could be used for this project. H Harry Smith, who was a genuine occultist, um, gave me really good advice on how to structure an exorcism that had actually some elements of reality about it, more in a magical way than a Catholic way. It was half jest and half serious. The base structure appears to be pagan by doing things like invoking the four elements, by invoking sexuality, right? There's a spot on the ritual that talks about the exorgasm. It's not quite clear what that is. And then has kind of borrowed trappings from ancient magical traditions. And so this was a very kind of eclectic bricolage of combining different traditions that all seem to have this kind of mystical or magical cachet. And I have my roots more strongly in, uh, say, the classical tradition and in poetry and literature rather than in uh, dope and street sex. These were not just sort of unsophisticated, stoned people. Even though their ideas were unusual, they actually had quite a lot of intellectual resources at their command. Well, Alan and I were very close. Alan was a uh genuine humanitarian and he did thousands of benefits he raised money for so many different causes and abby was a natural athlete in a sharp mind and uh, he had uh, strong organizational skills and he didn't need to sleep he told me that you had to boing awake you had to come awake at four in the morning and think clearly when something came up in the revolutionary front but he had a streak of meanness about him. I like to think of Abby Hoffman as a kind of Lenin of his generation, in the sense that, like the great Russian revolutionary leader, he, in 1967 and earlier, realized that you needed a political soldier, a group of committed individuals coming together with a strategy. In Lenin's case, that was revolutionary violence. However, in Abby Hoffman's case, it was the use of buffoonery, comic foolery, pranks, stunts, and games. My name is Abby. I am an orphan of America. America has decided to devour its youth. We will resist. We will not participate in America's children for breakfast program. Fuck them. Of all of the people involved in this project, Abby Hoffman was the one who most understood how to manipulate the media and how to spin the story. You convince them that you're crazy enough to do anything and then they won't touch you. Hoffman famously said, we're not taken seriously by the status quo. We'll never be interviewed on the nightly news but we can be that weird segment that they have at the end of the nightly news because it's just so weird and so interesting. This is a CBS News special report. The ordeal of Contien. For me, one of the most significant things from an academic perspective about the development of activism in the 1960s is that it was really in response to advances in media technologies. So the rise of television news broadcasts and the fact that People were watching the war in Vietnam in their living rooms on the nightly news. 
But the rise of, of, of the news media was also problematic for activists because it was very, very difficult for them to get serious news media attention for their actions. Um, and, you know, we, we think about, I think it's a little difficult for us to imagine in the present day when we have hundreds of cable channels available to us, that there were only a few major networks broadcasting. And for a performance activist piece to get any sort of you know, mainstream news attention, it had to meet a real high threshold of impact, I suppose. Um, so that's what Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin and the like were responding to in their plans for the Pentagon exorcism. How do we actually do something that will not just sit within this context of preaching to the converted, if you like, but will actually reach Americans on a significant scale. Mike Wallace, CBS News, New York. So before this project went underway, he and a friend went to the Pentagon and began very conspicuously walking up to it and measuring how many times uh, their bodies fit to each side. And they were detained by military police who asked what they were doing. And Abby Hoffman immediately didn't try to conceal anything and said, we're measuring how many hippies it will take to surround the Pentagon because we're going to surround the building and levitate it and perform an exorcism. That was actually very clever as well, because on the one hand, again, it's a bit of a joke. He goes to the Pentagon, he gets arrested because he finds out, oops, it's illegal to measure the Pentagon. But there was another point to it, which was telling the media that he thought that he could get enough people together to encircle the Pentagon. So right there, he was signaling to the media that actually, we've got large numbers coming. This is serious. Take us serious. And Abby Hoffman said, I would like a, a permit to levitate the Pentagon. And this official asked him, how high are you going to levitate it? And he said, it's going to go into the sky. And he said, that might hurt the building. You can levitate it four feet. If your group levitates at more than four feet, you're in violation of your permit and, and you'll be arrested. The other arrangement made at that deal was that they could not surround the building, but they could uh, protest peacefully uh, in front of it. There was this one witness watching this and was just sort of shocked that Abby Hoffman was being taken uh, so seriously. That's where Abby Hoffman's success comes from, is the fact that underneath all of the drug-fueled brainstorming, actually, he was a creative genius and he knew his stuff. He knew his repertoire of theater practice, and he took the time to understand the audience that he was trying to affect. And then Abby Hoffman held a fundraiser in New York City that involved everyone sort of surrounding a scale model of the Pentagon that was raised into the air by piano wire while everyone chanted uh, over it. But I think what Abby Hoffman most wanted out of this event was to create a kind of media buzz about what they were doing. The Yippies believe in the violation of every law in the books, including the law of gravity. <laughs> they were selling this event to the media in all sincerity, that they believed wholeheartedly that they could levitate the Pentagon. So the next day after this fundraiser, an article ran that said, uh, hippie magic ready to levitate the Pentagon. And we're going to assemble a mass of holy men to surround the Pentagon. And they're going to surround it with chanting and love and drum beating. And the Pentagon is going to rise into the air on October 21st. And when it gets about 300 feet in the air, it's going to start to vibrate. Slowly at first, and then a little quicker. And all the evil spirits are going to pour out. 
it's hard to know exactly what really happened at the exorcism, even with, uh, you know, people who were there that can still be interviewed because it was a very chaotic and confusing event. One person who was there was Jan Rose. I was 17 years old at the time of the demonstration, and it was mind-blowing. My name is Jan Rose Kasmer. My peace name is Jan Rose. First and foremost, I was hoping I was going to meet somebody my age at the demonstration. So I put on my very best pink jumper, um, got myself all ready for the demonstration, went out of the house. I never told anybody where I was going. And I'm sitting on a DC transit bus going from the suburbs of Maryland into Washington, DC. And I saw that, you know, the crowd was building. I thought it was only the hippies that really cared about the Vietnam War and were against it. And the closer I got to the demonstration and saw these groups of people, I was astounded because they were normal, normal, normal. I I couldn't believe it. I saw mothers with baby strollers, nuns, priests, you know, people that I would have called the establishment at the time. These were straight looking people and it blew my mind. I actually ended up seeing very few hippies like me. The the majority was this, you know, average American who was as outraged as I was. So the day began with a gathering at the Lincoln Memorial, and there was about 100,000 people who attended that demonstration. It was a typical anti-war demonstration. The actual meeting place was around the reflecting pool. It was featured in... Forrest Gump. We moved as a mass and marched across the 14th Street Bridge to the Pentagon. I fell in step with a group that held a banner up that said, Youth Against Fascism. So I'm like, well, that sounds good to me. They were chanting, Viva Che, Viva Che. So I was chanting, Viva Che, not even knowing what a Che was. I'd never heard of Che Guevara. But I just went along with the flow. So viva Che, viva Che. 50,000 people marched to the Pentagon um, and they were met by 2,500 armed soldiers um, bearing rifles. And they were blockading one side of the Pentagon. My focus then ended up being on the soldiers that were in front of me because I wanted them to join the revolution. I wanted them to throw down their arms and, and take a vow of peace. Kent State hadn't happened. Nobody had ever gotten killed at a demonstration. I felt no sense of threat. I was just so swept up in the moment. You know, and that's the folly of youth. It was all about my sense of purpose and why I was there. I was there to stop the war, and that's all that I cared about. Meanwhile, the Fugs and Abby Hoffman prepared to do their thing. A flatbed truck was driven uh, into the protest area. The the band, The Fugs, featuring Ed Sanders playing uh, on top of it. They had a large tapestry or mural behind them with the the image of the all-seeing eye, so sort of a magical uh, symbol. We got as close to the Pentagon as we could get, and then we parked, and we set up our microphones, and they started the generator. Underneath our flatbed truck was Kenneth Anger. Dr. Kenneth Anger, renowned occult filmmaker and follower of Aleister Crowley, had his own more serious ritual in mind. 
Spurning the theatricality of the exorcism, he decided he was the magician to go bigger and one better by taking on Mars, the god of war, in his own personal ritual. And for this, he stripped off his shirt, revealing a huge tattoo of Lucifer emblazoned across his chest. There are accounts that he was beneath this flatbed truck down in the gravel, that he had a tarot card of the devil that he was setting on fire uh, and was doing a sort of much more traditional and rigorous uh, attempt at an actual magical attack on, on the Pentagon. But the exorcism was underway immediately. I stood up and I read in a sing-song way this long intonation for peace and love. And then I used from Harry Smith the ceremony of exorcism, earth, physical contact with the Pentagon, air, conjuring seeing, groping, hearing, and loving, we call upon the powers of the cosmos to protect our ceremonies in the name of Zeus, in the name of Anubis, God of the dead, in the name of all those killed for causes they do not comprehend, in the name of the lives of the dead soldiers in Vietnam who were killed because Quite a, of a detailed battle. script for the whole event. So there was lots of sort of mini rituals. Um, they had prayers for the karma of soldiers in Vietnam. They made sacred offerings to the four directions. Um, they consecrated the space by scattering a trail of cornmeal around it. Then it sounds from sound recordings that there was also this sort of chaotic scene going on around this that may have involved possibly some erotic activities, right? People sort of uh, kissing or uh, making physical contact in a kind of defiant or rebellious uh, way. That's sort of not appropriate behavior for the Pentagon. But you have a sense of a very sort of chaotic event. Then we all started chanting out, demons out. Even the crowd were all chanting out, demons out. Out, demons out. Out, demons out. Out, demons out. Ed Sanders ended his exorcism with a chant of Om, and witnesses who were there said that everyone could hear that at the end as kind of a completion of the ceremony. For the most part, the day unfolded quite peacefully and quite according to plan. There were a couple of skirmishes with, between protesters and police, and that primarily happened um, as protesters tried to trespass and tried to actually enter the Pentagon. They were met with quite a significant amount of police brutality. They were thrown physically to the ground, um, forced out of the building. And ultimately, at the end of the entire event, about 700 people had been arrested. We know that there were a lot of things that people had planned to do that never actually happened. They had wanted to paint a cow with Egyptian symbols to represent the Egyptian goddess Hathor. They were driving a cow out in a truck from Virginia, and that was stopped by police, and the cow was uh, briefly arrested, I guess. There was even a plan to charter a small plane and rain flowers down on the Pentagon from above. None of these things actually happened, but for the people involved in the exorcism felt that the effort and the sort of spectacle of the thing was what mattered most. People like Allen Ginsberg believe that the, the exorcism was a success and that afterwards the kind of symbolism of the Pentagon had changed and that Americans began to regard it 
less as sort of a symbol of their protection from foreign enemies and more of a, a reminder uh, of, of how thoroughly military interests had control over their government. So there's some evidence that the protests, especially the image of this girl putting a, a flower into the barrel of a soldier who's about the same age, uh, really did have an effect on how people thought about the Pentagon. As it turns out, the photo that was captured of me was taken at the very moment I looked at these soldiers and I went, oh my God. Because up until that moment, all of these soldiers just represented the war machine and they were just part of the rhetoric. They were the baby killers. And all of a sudden I looked and they were just young boys. And all the rhetoric melted away. And all of a sudden I realized how much a victim of the war they were as well. You know, to this day, I mean, the first time I ever saw my photo uh, exhibited, I, I just, I, I burst into tears. It still saddens me horribly. It took a long time for somebody to finally recognize that it was me. And uh, my father saw my photo in a Magnum photo magazine and showed it to me. This was probably in the 90s. And I wrote a letter to Mark Raboose saying something to the effect of, you probably don't really care who I am, but I'm the girl that you photographed. Military police got back into the compound of the two and a half million dollars. Not long after that was the Tet Offensive. The platoon of Viet Cong were in control. When uh, a lot of American efforts were pushed back in Vietnam, and after that, uh, polls showed that opposition to the war was higher than ever. So for Allen Ginsberg, he said, this is evidence that the work that we do matters. So that's more or less the story of the Pentagon, you know. But the war went on for another five and a half or six years. So I always say we did levitate the Pentagon, but we forgot to turn it and twist it and give it a new direction. So did the Pentagon actually levitate? Did the Earth move for them? Did the building rise from its foundations? Well, no. And yet, depends on who you're asking. About 3 a.m. it went up. Didn't go up to 100 feet we wanted, but it turned orange, vibrated, went up about 10 feet. You can see it if you look at the pictures, careful. Most of the news media reactions were um, predictably about the sort of absurdity and irrelevance of, of this as a political act, dismissed in a way as being just another stunt of the hippie counterculture. And yet it did succeed in getting that news media coverage, which was exactly what, what Abby Hoffman really had intended in the first place. In my opinion, it really demonstrated how effective it is to counter the very serious business of war 
with a theatricality that is very frivolous and very non-serious and tries to dismantle this edifice of power. So it can be very, very effective to use humor, to use frivolity, to use playfulness, to challenge very serious political power. And that legacy has, has definitely survived into the present day. Most recently, I see these tactics being used by a group called the Satanic Temple. They actually use various acts of street theater to try to change the conversation about various political issues. So, for example, a Satanist named Jex Blackmore uh, went to an abortion clinic where a, a Christian group was protesting it and had everyone dressed as babies, and they began painting them in gold and said that the protesters who opposed abortion were guilty of fetal idolatry. It was still sort of the same toolkit of using ritual and symbols uh, to change the conversation. And finally, I've begun to see this tactic used by the right as well. The so-called alt-right movements uh, has begun to have very sophisticated conversations about how to use memes to change the way people think about things. Uh, this cartoon character called Pepe the Frog is the god of their religion and that their actions gave Pepe the power to make Donald Trump the president. And so I see a lot of similarities between what the alt-right is doing and what Ginsburg thought about politics in the 1960s, except politically they're, they're completely opposed. They couldn't be further apart as far as their vision of what America should look like. There's been a lot of skepticism about talking about politics as performance, certainly on the part of scholars, that if we treat politics as performance, we are somehow um, minimalizing it, we're trivializing it. We only have to look around at the way the world around us is working in the present moment to understand that's just not the case. Politics is performance. It is all about presenting oneself in a particular way for a persuasive effect on audiences. Because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. Firstly, the idea that I made some secret agreement with George Bush back last September that we would invade Iraq in any event at a particular time is completely and totally untrue. America wants somebody to restore honor and dignity to the White House. That's what America is looking for. You know, one of the hardest parts of my job is to connect Iraq to the war on terror. What we're being told is that we are in an age of post-truth fake news politics. That makes it really challenging for those of us who want to use art to challenge politics, because what happens when we're told that all of politics is already artifice? Where does that leave the artist or the artist activist? Maybe it's not about creating spectacle now. Maybe it's not about a very visible event. Maybe it's not about using the news media at all. And maybe it has something more to do with bringing people physically together and trying to help them relate to one another in a different way. We didn't invent the cry of peace and justice in the 1960s, and we certainly didn't write its final chapter. Those people that still have their shoulders to the wheel, that are still political activists, I salute you, I'm with you, the battle is not over. Protest and survive, who was it, E.P. Thompson? See, to think globally and act locally is a very difficult 
command. You have to pick your struggles, and um, it's not easy. Uh, protest and survive. The Exegasm was brought to you by the team at Radio Wolfgang. With me, Carl Williams, it featured Jan Rose Kasma, Joseph Laycock, Cammy Rowe, and Ed Sanders. Produced by Holly Aquilina, edit and sound designed by Natalia Rodriguez, and the executive producer was Harry Watson. Special thanks to Jeff Marsh, director of theatre and performing arts at the Viennese Museum, and to Nina Picard. The team would like to thank all of our contributors for their involvement. We are volunteers of America, volunteers of America.